Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay. All right. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. Here in Los Angeles, it's good to be with you. I have on the program today David Tremblay. He is the author of a memoir called As You Were, available now from Dezank Books. It is the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. Founded, uh, what, 15 years ago? It is now edited by Joseph Grantham, who also happens to be the social media director for this uh, program. He is also a, a poet and a bookseller and a writer. He's, you know, he's a man of uh, many gifts. So, David Tremblay, uh, as you were, Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, an incandescent addition to both Native American letters and the literature of the Iraq and Afghan wars, end quote. It's a very difficult book to uh, sum up in a few words, but I'll give it a go here just for the uh, purpose of the monologue. David Tremblay survived an incredibly difficult and traumatic childhood. He was raised in the uh, Duluth, Minnesota area. And, you know, abuse, addiction, the legacies, uh, the dark legacies of colonialism, the Indian boarding schools, Adults in his world who did not have the capacity to parent or who, um, you know, were just carrying the weight of their own traumas and their own human suffering. So the conditions of David Tremblay's childhood were so uh, difficult that he fled to the army and, you know... (laughs) goes off into the armed forces and uh you know by comparison it was like a relief i don't know if that's exactly how he would put it but you know what i'm saying he was uh in the military for over a decade and then after getting out of the military he attended the institute of american indian arts and received his mfa and uh worked with stephen graham jones a recent guest on this program coincidentally enough Stephen Graham Jones uh, is one of his mentors. So I had a great time talking with David Tremblay. We spoke over the transom as one does in these uh, times of COVID. 
He lives in Oklahoma with uh, his dogs. I believe they are named Bentley and Hank, if I have this correct. And I should mention that it was like it was pretty cold, I believe, in Oklahoma on the day of this recording. David mentioned as much, and I think it was on the front end of this cold snap that we've seen all throughout the country, but especially in uh, Oklahoma and Texas in recent days. So I was glad uh, glad to get the chance to catch him uh, with the power on <laughs> and uh, to learn more about his uh, his life and his survival. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with David Tremblay. His new memoir, One More Time is Cold, As You Were. As you're reading the book, it opens with the story of Grandpa Bullshit, which was my mother's father. His And names have been changed in the book. Spellings have been changed. Uh, his wife was Grandma Lynn, but who raised me was my father's mother and her second husband. Her second husband was Grandpa Bub or Leroy, and she was Audrey. For whatever reason, I'm not sure why my two families do this but on one side it's grandma first name on the other side it's grandma last name i have no why no reason why it's ever been like that but that's just how we do things and then you'll hear about grandpa gene in the book who was my father's father and he passed away 1971 i believe which i comment in the same fashion as elvis my younger sister found him in the bathroom dead okay so grandma it, it, most of the most of the book and most of your childhood experiences are with uh your father grandma audrey yeah. and correct me if i get this wrong grandma audrey and then her second husband bub yes okay that is the primary like n- nuclear That's family experience that you that you had yes and Grandma Audrey was an incredibly tough character. Like she, she was abusive. She, you know, we we spoke of this a minute ago about the cycles of abuse and what she had gone through. But um, she was shockingly violent with you when you were a child. Yes. yes, and I had to come. That's writing the book. I came to terms with some things, and that was the one thing. Is when my mom dropped me off at her doorstep, you know, proverbially. It wasn't that she was dropping me off at this monster's house. She was a grandmother that liked to drink. She went down to the Moose Lodge and got her drink on, and that was it. That was her thing. That was as far as it got. But when she looked at having to raise me, and then she looked at how she was raising my sister and how she raised my aunt, and that worked. But how she raised my father did not work which was the coddling and the babying and the protection. So she flipped a script on me and she didn't give me any breathing room. That's the only thing that I can figure out because the woman that my mother dropped me off with, left me with, was not the the woman that she became shortly thereafter. So she was like overcorrecting, essentially, trying to make sure that she didn't repeat the same mistakes that she felt she made with your dad. Absolutely. And what about your mom? Your mom, as a figure in your life, like the reason she dropped you off was? She had been divorced from my father. Or they they split. My father was. She was 
how do I, how do I say this? She earned her escape from my father and took my older brother and myself away. We ended up in a church basement hiding. And I'm still friends with that pastor's children. I grew up with them. I actually was in the nursery with one of them at the hospital. We're that close in age. And uh, she worked three different jobs. She worked as a locksmith. She worked as a waitress. And she worked as a dancer, an uh, exotic dancer. And we ended up sleeping in her car, just hiding out from my father everywhere we could because at that time there were no better women in children's shelters. So it was just a, a game of chess, basically, in a small town trying to avoid my father, who was psychotic, uh, to the point where on the day of the divorce, he called her beforehand and said, if you ask for David, I'll kill you, the bailiff, and then me. My God. Okay. And so, and just to place this geographically, you were raised in... Uh... Duluth, Minnesota. Okay, so which are right outside of uh, Cloquet and the Fond du Lac Indian Reservation, which is where I was born. All right, and so let's talk about um, your Native American ancestry. Like you're a combination of uh, what Fond du Lac? Like what's the Fond du? Uh, yeah, we believe Fa Grandma wouldn't say unequivocally, but yeah, Fond du Lac Ojibwe, and then Inu Montaganese from which her family went way way back. And my father's father's father was Ojibwe from Ontario. And I have paperwork on him and his sisters. And after 1891, there's no more mention of his sisters, which happened a lot with young Native girls back then. Meaning what? That they, they what, didn't... Got sent off to school and were never seen of for again. Nah. I know there's one school where they sent kids to the school. They didn't have room, so they just put them in a mass grave. Jeez Louise. So she, that was her childhood. But she never dove into it, so there was that weird miscommunication as a child when it's like she would talk about boarding houses and boarding schools, and I thought, cool because that's what i was reading about in school with you know with all this canon my grandma went to one of these really nice schools and that's why she's so smart and she's so her handwriting is so fanciful you know, she never got into the boarding schools just that she went her and her sister would talk about them but they never you know like dug into them and i wasn't raised on the reservation or around that many natives to where there was a conversation and whenever I did ask her, you know, what are we, she'd just say, don't be so goddamn dumb and backhand me. Hmm. And you wrote this book in the second person, which yes. uh, I've seen here and there. It seems like it seems like a good call for this particular kind of story, uh, you know, going through such painful memories and trying to find some degree of distance from them so that you can put them down can you talk a little bit about the decision to write in the second person that decision was just it, it wasn't as as deep as you would like it to be it i wanted it to be difficult i didn't want to have a memoir that was just i i i i the whole way through sounding like axel rose so 
I wanted, and I knew my story wasn't only my story, that other people had lived, they had, they had lived some portion of my story silently. And I thought I had been through a, a pretty bad mix of things. And I wanted to say, you know, there is a way to get through this. And it's like music and books, same thing for me. It's like you hear these songs and other people made it through so I can make it through. So it was more of no longer being seen and not heard, which is how I was raised. And my whole childhood, I couldn't say anything. So now this is my way of undoing it, putting things right with my father. As he knew that the book was coming out. He knew that it was being written. Excerpts had appeared in a few magazines over the years, and he was in home hospice with my sister. And my sister would buy the magazines or the journals when they came out, and she'd tell him that I had a story, and he'd ask what it was about. And when she said it was about when he lived with you or Grandma, he'd just turn his head and stare at the wall, and he wouldn't talk for the rest of the day. Hmm. That was the first time in his adult life he was dry. It was well, he was in hospice. Do you think, I mean, you wonder how much he remembers, considering how drunk he was for much of your childhood. But the fact that he, would, the fact that he would turn his head and, and not talk the rest of the day would indicate to me that he feels or felt some guilt. Absolutely. And I think he was just right. He was so brazen right up to the end. He told multiple of my little cousins that he was going to hell. He never asked for forgiveness or uh, said he was sorry or said, please forgive me, you know, anything along those lines. And he, he abused the entire family, the entire family, multi-generations, up and down. And he never asked for forgiveness? No. He just said, I'm going to hell. He he, ex- he accepted it, and that was that was it. Um when he was in home hospice, my sister sent me a picture of him, and he had this truck store. Uh, what do you call it? Yeah, uh, a truck. Yeah, uh, just one of those cheesy airbrushed dream catchers that you see at the at the truck stop. So I said that couldn't do. So I had a friend from back north make one, and we sent one to him. And I had, you know, a real actual Ojibwe made dream catcher over his deathbed. And my sister asked me what we do with it. I said to her, well, his last words were repeatedly, I'm going to hell. So I ended up calling the elders back home, and they said, bury it or burn it, but don't keep it. And so what did you do? My sister buried it and then moved later. <laughs> not not because it was in the ground, but just because she had bought a house. Okay. Yeah, dude, I wouldn't mess around with that either. If the elders no. tell me to burn it, I'll bury it. I'm burying it <laughs> or burning yeah. it. <laughs> Or both. <laughs> hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, you know, I had a, uh, by comparison, a much, uh, different childhood, you know, that sort of seems like leave it to beaver or something by comparison. And I think coming from that perspective and reading about all that you went through, it, it's astonishing to me that you survived, um, and that you've come out of it as a person who can like write a book about it. (laughs) You know, like I think so many people don't survive, um, homes like this and situations like this. Can you, do you know why you were able to make it through? Like, can you point to anything or there was that I made it, this was brought up during my very first workshop in the very first chapter of the book. And someone wanted to know how I made it through. And I said, well, I made it through what? that was my every day that was my every day and that's all I knew and I had some friends I had you know screaming going on in their household but nothing compared to what I had and everyone in the neighborhood knew how strict I got it um so there was if my grandma called for me she would she would you know there'd be like a telephone in almost and people would just yell for me until I got home and you know everyone was watching out to make sure I got home and didn't upset my grandmother. But so that was my normal. That was my every day. And I was just numb to it. As I got a little older, I started realizing that there were other ways to live as a family. Cause you know, I didn't have my mom. I didn't have my true grandfather. I was in this really weird mix. Uh, my older sister lived with me. Uh, she is nine years older. Her mother died when she was one year old, so she went to grandma's house too. So that, that's a whole other thing. But when I got to a certain point when I realized what they were doing to me and, and they were talking about hating how they were raised, two different generations of people talking about how they were raised, I was like, well, why don't you stop it then? I, I couldn't understand it's like, I hate my father. I never want my children to hate me. And, well, I mean, if you're conscious of it, why why continue? I couldn't understand how they couldn't change or wouldn't change. Well, that's a good point. And it's, you know, because I think when we talk about um, abuse and addiction, you know, these things tend to cycle through families from generation to generation. That's, like, well-documented. But it also should be noted that it's not, a foregone conclusion that somebody who has experienced child abuse will then go on to become an abuser like that. There are people who break the cycle. There are people who decide to take another path. Um, you know, can you think of why you were able to do it? Um, you know, and, and try to break out and why they maybe were not able to. I, just hated my father so much. I was literally 
fueled by hate for my father, I would ask myself, what would he do? And I'd do the complete opposite. And that's that's just how I handled things from middle of elementary school on. I just, like, what would he do? I didn't, because I didn't want to be my father's son so much. So when I turned 18, I changed the spelling of my last name. I, I spelled it more phonetically. How was it, how, how it spelled originally? Oh, uh, the Quebecois was uh, T-R-E-M-B-L-A-Y. Oh, okay. And uh, I think that there's something kind of sweet and perfect about the kid logic in that. Like, I, this guy's an asshole. I'm just going to do the exact opposite of what he does and see how that works. <laughs> like, now, I had my grandpa, Bub, who was the, the shining opposite of my father, but he was so passive that he was just a bystander. I can remember twice that he stood up and told my grandma enough. And what did she and what well, what did she say when he did that? Did she stand down? She scowled at him and he sat back down. Ugh. And he was he was like a six foot six Swedish steel worker. And she's a five foot one little native woman that was just fueled by brandy and he didn't uh he didn't uh stand up to her no oh no no one in the family did yeah she's like it's i mean she was five foot one and she was a weird kind of glue because after she died we never gathered again as a family My aunt has her kids, and they have their kids, and we did our thing, which was, at that point, it was just my father and I at his, his house. So I remember one time I got a pair of, like, knockoff BKs for Christmas that were in a what's a, Kmart wait, shopping what's bag. what's a BK? Oh, British Knight. Okay. So I'm putting myself around 1990 back then, yeah. But they were like blue, blue light, blue light special, Kmart knockoff British nights. That was my Christmas after Grandma died. But before that, it was two nights of food and cookies and festivals and singing and you know the family thing, just with the, this looming threat of Grandma becoming too angry. So when she would uh, become abusive with you, was it always related to her drinking? Like, was she? Did you experience sober grandma and have? Oh yeah, grandma was. She would just get meaner. She would pick up her yardstick that had the metal edge instead of her hand or her fly swatter. When she she would just not want to hurt for whatever reason, her hands got arthritic. Early on, she passed away at 68 years old. I moved into her house when she was probably in her late 50s, I want to say. So I was with her for the last 12 years of her life. But And she just got mean, and I think she just got burnt out. She, If you want to take a walk in her shoes, when she was... In her 20s, her first child got hit by a car, got disabled, put into a three-quarter body cast. And these were the days back when the wheelchairs didn't collapse. They were just basically like port swings with the wheels on them. And she couldn't fold that up and get it on the city bus and take it 
take him down to uh, physical therapy, which was pretty rudimentary back in 1951. And she got tired of everyone staring at her. And when she did carry him, it was laborious, to say the least, considering he was half her size and then dipped in plaster. And she was only five foot one to begin with. And she finally got both kids out of the house. And then in walks my sister at one year old. And she raises her for nine years. And then I come in. So she is just burnt out. And she was left to do what she would, you know, she could, she kept me alive. And I think I make it clear in the book that everyone that lived in her house is someone that she couldn't get rid of. She raised the Boston Terriers and the ones that weren't within the AKC standard, she kept them. And it was the same thing with us kids. We, you know, our parents didn't want us, so they just dropped us off at grandma's on, on both occasions. So we were kind of left over. And it was the same thing when I moved out to my father's house after she passed away to where I was in, I stayed in his storage room for two years. She, I, like, what strikes me is just the fact that uh, life is so hard and it comes at certain people with so much that it overwhelms them. You know, I mean, to to have to raise that means basically she spent her entire life raising children um with li- yes. with limited resources like financial resources but also like emotional resources um i don't know i have some sympathy i, I feel some sympathy for her um i don't know if you do but like as a re- no i was trying to achieve that in the book i was trying to show the full person that's why i pulled the self out at the end, there were a few stories that I had to pull out because it was just, to me, they, they felt whiny about my situation. And I, I just, I wanted to pull the self out because I wanted people to have the experience that the people did that allowed it, that enabled my grandmother and my father, the, the bystanders, the passive bystanders. That's what I wanted the reader to feel like when they're viewing all of these things that I compiled. Yeah, I mean, it brings up an interesting question about what should happen in a situation like this. Like, obviously, there should be an intervention. Yes. And the people who are perpetrating the abuse should be held to account somehow. Um, You know, I guess back in those days, it happened less frequently than it does today. But in a, a contemporary context, if something like this is happening, it gets reported, like you would hope, to uh, Child Protective Services. Sometimes, but there are so many social workers are so overwhelmed. There's so many kids out there without functioning families. I see it a lot here in Tulsa. I substitute teach at one of the school districts, and it's basically single parent, low income, everyone's on free lunch program. It's 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 this kind of demographic. Uh, all I mean, all kinds of ethnicities, and. It's 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 still out there. You still see it. I I've seen kids with marks that I know how they got them, and I'll ask them as we're told to do, and we we can't keep nudging them. We'll ask them if they want to talk to somebody, if they want to go see the nurse. But that's the end of it. it and there's just such a 
I was I was shocked at how many kids get left by the wayside. I'll segue. When I was stationed down in Mississippi as a police officer, on base, we had a 12-year-old boy rape a 10-year-old boy on base on the parade grounds behind one of the sheds, lived in housing. Uh, both fathers were on deployment. Moms were home by themselves because they were so young we couldn't touch them we had to turn them over to ncis ncis turned it over to the child protective services because there was no witnesses or or parents to interview they just dropped it jesus christ see this is like i mean these are important stories to to read and to hear but i find it it's like so demoralizing it's so sad and it's hard not it to, is, it's hard not to feel like a, a sense of hopelessness, you know, because the scale of the problem is so large. I'd like to see it more of as a, a call to arms or a wake up call. You know, there's so many people in my life that if they would have spoke up when I was little, life would have been so so different. There was one of my father's girlfriends had a plan of marrying him, adopting me, and divorcing him. And? and it didn't happen, but that that was like the one hope that I knew about as a child. Like they were going to take me away. And in the book, I talk about fantasizing about getting pulled into the system because I knew all the horror stories, and none of them came close. So I thought that would be a downgrade: is go live with a foster family. Well, you know, you, you talk about comparison and your book, um, you know, it doesn't work on a linear path. You know, you're alternating between different times in your childhood and you're alternating between, um, you know, your experience uh, in the mil your experiences in the military over in the Middle East and your childhood. And I couldn't help but note that the like the the, the sanest or the calmest parts of the book happened when you were like in Iraq and um you know yes. in a in a, like a detention facility working as a as a prison guard essentially right i mean yes th that is correct th that that, that speaks was... to the craziness of your childhood and to all that you went through as a kid that those experiences which are harrowing in their own right seemed like you know tame by comparison absolutely and i did not write about any times that we received or returned fire or anything along those lines because I wanted it to be just a story about people and what happens to them before and after the, um, the cause and the effect. This book started out linear and my mentor in grad school, Stephen Graham Jones, who was my final mentor and my second mentor, he said, no, you can't do this because I just did not write about high school because I was – an annoying high school kid. I was a skater. I listened to rap. I, you know, I was a 15, 16, 17 year old boy. I did that kind of stuff. I was ultra violent for a, a while, which I do talk about a little bit. And that's how I gained my escape from my father is beating the hell out of him one day when he came at me. And I was only 14 when that happened. Yeah. I, I wanted to, cause that's another thing, you know, when you're suffering abuse and you, 
have such violent people in your family, uh, it makes sense to me that you would yourself wind up being uh, violent or having... I was, but I would beat up bullies. If I saw a fight that was more than one-on-one, I would split it up. I would go in, because I had, you know, this gorilla at home beating the shit out of me. So if a fellow 12-year-old pushes me, I don't care. But I would not, I would not allow getting beat up at school. I, I, I had to allow it at home, but I would not allow it when I went anywhere else. And I would not let anyone else get bullied or beat up. If they're and even if I saw a fight that was one-on-one in the junior high or high school and it was not fair, I would jump in and I'd help out the little kid. Well, that's what I, there's, a, there's a great passage in the book. Like one of my favorite passages in the, in the book is – and forgive me if I'm messing up the details. I'm, I have a terrible like reader memory. But it's your neighbor, the little kid in junior high. Jeremy. Jeremy, yes. yeah. Like you – he's getting pushed around and – I believe this is the first time in the book. I don't know if it was the first time in your life, but it was the first time in the book that you, um, like you're the one perpetrating the violence and you're trying to, you're trying to protect him. And, um, that, you know, that to me, like I've, I guess I felt a sense of like, I mean, obviously I was rooting for you to protect this kid. Um, but there was also, like a sense of, um, I don't know. I don't know how to even describe it. There's like a sense of proportion to it, you know, that you're coming out of all of these awful experiences as a child of abuse and then kind of like executing some vigilante justice (laughs) on behalf of this kid. Like it made, you know, it obviously makes sense. It made sense to me. I hated bullies. I beat them up. I didn't care. I, one of these kids had a shoe print on his face for like six weeks and he sat next to me in English class and it was Jeremy's aunt. That was the English teacher. So wait, so wait, 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 who, who had the shoe print on his head? Oh, one of the kids, one of the kids from, uh, one of the bullies from our school, he had gotten in a fight with me because he had picked on a fight with someone way, way, way smaller and he ended up with a shoe print. My, I think, what was I wearing back then? I think I was wearing All-Stars. So you could see, like, the little grid on his face for almost six weeks. <laughs> Went from black to purple to blue to orange and yellow. But I was known from a young age that, that I would protect. If someone was going to get beat up on the way home from school... I would walk them home from school and then haul ass back to my house so I didn't get in trouble for being late. I have to I, think- I have to believe too though. I have to believe that like having to face down as you put it like a a big gorilla um you know somebody much bigger than you who could easily overpower you and having to endure all that you must have been fearless when you were like facing off with some 12 year old kid with braces. I did hit the overdrive button a couple times. So I think I put it in the book and I wanted, I wanted the reader to see that, that you don't, you don't leave unaffected, but I, yeah, I had a seventh or eighth. It was seventh grade. Somebody, 
pushed me and called me a bitch and then walked away and everyone laughed and laughter at it in junior high is the ultimate wound so i went back after him when he was taking his drink from his fountain i slammed him back down into it knocked the thing off the wall and so when i when i was responding to violence with violence i always turn it up a notch to make sure that I wasn't going to become a, a victim again. And then you, then you joined the military. Yes. Seemed like a natural progression for that point, but also just to get away, to get geographically as far away as I could. There's a scene in the book where you are, I think, in basic training. Uh, I want to say it was like one of your drill sergeants had a pretty like shocking um, emotional insight into your childhood situation. He recognized yes. something in you, and it's it's the one time in the book that I think you displayed any real sadness. Like you, you know, you shed a tear in this scene when this guy spoke the truth to you. Like it cut through something. Can you- yeah, it was. You know, it was that second father. You hear a lot about that, and. I didn't have my first father, so there's there's a few second fathers in this book. Where now he was that was Drill Sergeant Fernandez. He was about six foot six without his hat. He was a monster. And what's not in the book is the one time I pissed him off though. I screwed something up when I was challenging him in a, a field exercise. And he said, There are try it again and I snatched my M16 out of his hands and he picked me up by both shoulders and just ragdolled me. But we did have that, that moment. Maybe that's why we connected because I was generally physically afraid of him despite I knew he had rules. And I think I addressed that in the book as well as the drill sergeants didn't scare me the way they were meant to because I knew that they had rules like they would get fired if they crossed the line. Yeah, they'd get fired, they'd lose their hat, they could get discharged, they could lose their job. And back home, there were no rules. You didn't know how long a beating was going to last. You didn't know what was going to happen. And what branch of the military was this? I did 10 years in the Navy, and then followed by six years in the Army. My time in the Navy wasn't as you would think, I only have eight days on a ship, but it was only 220 feet long, so I believe it's technically a boat. And that was nightmares. The first night we we traveled through the Mediterranean and 200-foot boat, 25-foot waves. I did not do well. It was my first time on the ship. So I only have eight days on a ship. And then we were... A military police unit but the tail end of my navy time was an expeditionary where we would go to places where there were no assets but we needed a secure perimeter airplanes uh, a ship would come into an unsecure harbor things like that that's what I was doing when I transferred over to the army I was just straight infantry so I got all the job skills and you was the army what took you into Iraq? No, the Navy. The Navy. 
after I lived in Mississippi during Katrina, my I lived on the beach. My place was completely eviscerated. The only thing that was left of my building were the uh, individual bathroom tile. That's how I could find my apartment was I remember what my bathroom tiles looked like. So 18 days after that, martial law, all that kind of good stuff that everyone saw on TV, they said, you don't have a place to live, so we're going to send you to Iraq for a year. And I went to this unit, and we trained out in the, the desert in El Paso and took off, worked in the prison. And we worked at the first brick-and-mortar prison in Iraq, but it was a secret prison. And the only reason I decided to write about that experience is because I found mention of the prison on WikiLeaks. And so what, why did that? Why did the WikiLeaks... Um, oh, because we we weren't allowed cameras, phones. Uh, we weren't allowed any any mention. We had uh, non disclosure agreements. We had the the top tier, the, basically the deck of cards and all of their minions were in our facility. If you remember back to the early parts of the Iraq War, there's a deck of cards with the most wanted, and that's who we housed the most most wanted, and then. I don't know how many other... We had 1,200 total people in there. Everything from mass murders, the people that were just suffering from dementia. Yeah, conditions were pretty grim, as you described them. And one of the things that I... I don't know, I guess I didn't either remember this or hadn't read about this, but you would mention some people would go off to be hanged. Yes, a happy bus. So that happened at the hands of the United States military or was that? No, no, no. We housed them after Abu Ghraib and that whole embarrassment. They shipped everybody after these new facilities. We got all of the worst, all the, the class Charlie detainees came to us and we simply housed them while they were waiting for trial. Some of them would go home because they served their sentence. Uh, murder was only seven years over there. Some of them, uh, would be hanged. Some would be paroled. They had a program that was going on while I was there where if an alderman or city council member or uh, or your cleric vouched for you, they could spring you out of prison. But if you broke your probation, both of you would go to prison. Damn. Well, I mean, you'd have to really love somebody to be the cleric and <laughs> put your yeah. put your neck on the line. Yeah. Um, and you had like in the military, like in, in the whatever sixteen years. How many years were you in the service? Sixteen. Like active service for sixteen years, and you said you didn't include any of the times in the like you didn't write about in the book any of the times that you had to exchange fire or you received like incoming mortar or whatever um you know happened over there uh, can you talk a bit more about the decision to not in- include that stuff i didn't want to write about the military at all because i didn't want to come off as representative so i wanted to get into the individual daily life of what it's like over there when you when you're over there and i was living amongst and housing the worst of the worst so there was a whole different culture inside that prison than there was in 
if you were in an infantry unit in downtown Baghdad or, you know, pick the flavor of the week over there. There's so, there was so much fighting, is still so much fighting over there. But I didn't want to come off as this is a war story and my I was raised by bad people and I did bad things to other bad people. I wanted it to just be the story of someone that has lived through these shockwaves of recycled trauma. And the military is very much that. I think I break that down in the book as best I can is that I, after I pulled my head out of the clouds and left the military, I saw that it was predatory, which is I started using everything I could before I got out. I got my associate's degree. I just started saying, you know, they're using me. I'm going to use them, which is what you should do with all of your benefits. You should never let them just die a slow death, which they will. So wait, when you say that the military is predatory, you mean that it um, it's predatory in the sense that it takes advantage of people who are living through cycles of abuse and like disproportionately so. Yes, uh, people, people of color, people. You're you're never, We would rarely find someone that had a good home or money at home. Most people came through. You know, they came, they came from horrible settings. I remember one individual who got sent home for a medical condition that they found halfway through boot camp. And he thought he was out of his neighborhood and away from his family. He broke down in tears when they were sending him back. There's so much of that. And it's just disproportionate if you look and see where your recruiting stations are versus where your uh, your tax brackets kind of fall. You'll notice that all of your recruiting stations are close to the poorer side of town. Yeah, I've had the thought in the past that, you know, like I think of like a country like Israel where national military service is mandatory, like everyone's Mm got to take a turn. Um, And I, I think in particular of the children of our elected representatives like you know if they if they're going to make consequential decisions about who to send into the line of fire their own you know i guess maybe that would complicate their decision making processes but it's hard not to want some some uh, equitability or if, is that a word you know what i mean it's hard not to i know exactly what you mean i completely agree with that if some because well i think israel's is public service so you can join the post office uh so on and so forth, as long as you're serving the government in some way for two years. And I think that would give so many young people a purpose. What what comes out of our military machine right now isn't good. They're great at turning civilians into soldiers, but and I'm using that as a catch-all phrase, and, but they're terrible at turning soldiers back into civilians. Hmm. Yeah, and it's I mean it's it's a, there's a an undeniable financial uh, element. You know, people go into the military because they want money for college, or they have you know they have nothing, and they're trying to survive. And the military seems like a reasonably decent option when you talk about benefits. And I'm sure at a recruiting office they can sell you on all the upside. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, so you can see how it works, but. 
Um, Here's one for you that's not in the book. My army recruiter was dating my older sister in high school and was actually engaged to her for a while. So he knew what situation he was getting me out of. And okay, so you go into the military. You you know you have a, a variety of experiences. Uh, th- uh, you know the number of which that you depict in your book is small. You know, com- in the grand scheme yes. of things. I'm interested to know relative to the other soldiers uh, that you served with, what your uh, ability to uh, like function in the job, what it was like in comparison to them. Like I, I can imagine a guy like me, like with my like coddled was, Midwestern childhood, like I probably, if I had gone into the military, I would have been con- considered soft. They would have had to work on me, you know, but you having gone through all that you went through, the military probably didn't phase you the way that it would for somebody who hadn't um, been subjected to all that you were subjected to. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, did it give you Actually, an, did it give it you some kind of advantage in, in a weird way? It did. It did because I had already been hardened and I had already been used to worst case scenarios. So when they came, you know, when they come at you with all of the things that they can stress you with in boot camp, it was everything I've, you know, it was a lighter version of everything that I had already experienced. There were, there were people that were just, they were, they would just get broken down because of when and how you could go to the bathroom. You had to ask permission. You could only go so many times. And, of course, they they do things to play with that where they force you to drink so much water. You absolutely positively have to go to the bathroom. And then they just play games with you to see how long it'll take everybody to break down. But I had experienced that exact same thing from my grandmother. She would wait. She would, you know, make me do something, not let me go to the bathroom, wait until I peed myself, beat me, and then send me to the bathroom. Were you the toughest guy in your platoon or in your unit? No. I was the most cynical. But I was I wasn't the toughest. There were there were some guys that were animals. And that's what they were they were built for it was right off the you know, right off the football field, right into the battlefield. So I want to get back to the conversation you had with your drill sergeant. Um, yes. Just because it's such a poignant moment. You know, you talk about being cynical and being sort of inured to the whole thing. But, you know, he did say something to you that got to you, <laughs> which in essence was, you know, whatever shit you've been through as a kid, like you're away from that now. I'm paraphrasing it, but that was the line that when he said it to you, got to you. And it stuck a pin in me. He came at me with softness, and I did not know how to respond to that. Which is probably what explains my first few wives. 
How many times have you been married? Four now. But it's been uh, six or seven years. Since I left the military, I haven't been married. And it's not because I'm just turning into a hermit. But I'm no longer forced to settle with somebody or forced to jump into something with somebody. As you are in the military. And so many guys just marry to get married in the military because you want to cling to some kind of normalcy. But lo and behold, the women that I picked were very brazen and bold and reminiscent of my grandmother. That that makes sense. <laughs> it made sense that somehow I was subconsciously attracted to that, but I also didn't tolerate that. There's the catch-22, so we ended up divorced. I just... I knew it. I recognized it. Apparently, I was drawn to it. But I got away from it as fast as I could. That's another cycle. I mean, that's... We're dummies. We keep on just moving in circles and trying to figure stuff out. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard hard to change. Uh, You know... It is, absolutely. To break like a deep... Like a deeply grooved pattern that is in us for reasons that ultimately are beyond our control. You know, I think this is the case for all humans, but I would imagine it's especially so for somebody who had a super tough childhood. Uh, Can you talk about like mental health and trying to sort through all of this and get to some clarity and hopefully some healing? Like, do you, are you a big believer in therapy? Obviously, books uh, have probably been a part of the equation for you. I'll, I'll jump on that, but I want to... You made me think of something else real quick. A few months after he passed away, he lived with my sister during his last seven months. This is and your father. This is my father, yes. My sister called me crying, saying he never softened. Like in the movies, she said... When, when someone's dying on their deathbed, they soften. And it destroyed her further that he didn't harbor any any sorrow for what he had done. And that hurt her more than anything he had actually physically or emotionally done during her, during her childhood. Now, as she did not seek any mental health care growing up at or after she grew up, after she got away from all that mess. Um, I did. I was, as I said, I was ultra violent in the 10th grade. I was forced to see a social worker and because I was in so many fights and they didn't know what to do with me. And they had finally caught, they thought I was, um, a victim of abuse in the ninth and 10th grade. And I was simply going to boxing and, you know, getting punched for real and punching back for real. And that's, that was my sport during high school. But it was after I started boxing that this, this new school started asking me, you know, where are these bruises from? So, but they ended up finding out about my history and they put me in with a social worker. And I met with her once to as many times a week as I needed 
I just had a, I had a laminated hall pass to go see her. Now she was a Native American social worker, and she introduced me to a little bit of the spirituality that I had not been exposed to from my grandmother because my grandmother was too busy being my, you know, filling the role of a mother. After I left the military, I sought help because I realized I could not process everything because I had gone from 60 miles an hour to zero. And that's what happens to a lot of guys when you get out of the military. You all of a sudden now you have time to think, and that becomes a very dangerous time is when you start thinking. I sought the psychiatrist out, and she set me up on some meds. They did not work, and it was pretty much just we're gonna throw meds at you until we find out what works for you especially but at that time when i left the mil the full-time military the va had received 1.7 million new patients all of which were iraq and afghanistan vets so they were completely bombarded so i got desperate and i started going to church because i just needed some sort of fellowship and i endured that for a while but I started feeling the same kind of resentment that I did as a kid going to church and hearing these stories about God intervening intervening and helping out, you know, people who should need it. And I was like, oh, how come I don't stack up? I went through that as a kid. And then I went through that again as an adult at the church after when I got really, really low after I got out. And I finally found... Uh, therapist here in Oklahoma who's a vet himself but he's not a combat vet by any means he was an x-ray technician but he's now a PhD he's got a psychology degree and he's we, we finally found a, a good rhythm he doesn't have me talk about the stuff that I lived through but he Built, helps me with the skill building, which I think is great with the reflective listening and so on and so forth and all the different things that I wasn't really shown healthy co coping mechanisms until I was already an adult. And that looked just goofy to me. So kind of learning those things that you should, you know, like when you teach your kid, oh, we don't hit when we're mad. And but my house, it was you speak their language. So their language was violence. I, I learned how to speak violence as a kid. So I've got this therapist now, and I was on about 11 pills a day. And I talk about this in the book where that was having an effect on me. And I, over the last year since I moved into a state with medical marijuana, I've started to switch over to cannabis for sleeping because I used to – while I was crafting the book, I was drinking myself to sleep after recalling all that stuff and putting it down in black and white. So now, instead of drinking to where I'm going to destroy my liver and taking so many pills that my liver has to be checked every four months, I'm now smoking marijuana to go into a nice, gentle sleep. And if I'm not going out 
in public or driving a vehicle. I'll smoke during the day just enough to slow my mind down so I can focus on one thing because intrusive thoughts are are serious in my head. And I think right now I'm working on seven different books to give you a picture of what's inside the head. <laughs> you do like if anyone's got books to write, it would be you. I mean, my God, you've got uh you There know. were so many things that I couldn't put in. I wanted the book to stay on on topic. So we ended up taking eighty two pages out. But there's this family lore that I wanna bring. You know, and it goes with the bad stuff and the good stuff. I, I wanna tell the stories that need to be told and should not be forgotten. You know, the book I'm working on right now or I'm rewriting happens to deal with my hometown and what happened on June 15th, 1920. That's all I'm going to say about that. That was a horrible day in my hometown's history, but every history book I wrote it, I read about it. They, whoever wrote it would never give voice to the victim. They would talk about what didn't happen, but they never gave voice to the victim. So I wanted to do that through this story, which I have, I mean, it's not my story to tell. My family wasn't involved in the lynchings at all. We weren't even in town at that point, but it's an informed that, that historical geographic history informed me growing up. So I wanted, I wanted to tell that story and further that story. And then I wanted to weave some of my family lore into that as well, because the farther you go back, the weirder it gets. When you say your hometown, are you speaking of Tulsa or Duluth? Duluth. June 15th, 1920 in Duluth. Yes, sir. Okay. And you've got six other books in the works. Yes. All related to like family lore and your personal history. and Well, but with created characters. I very much am a fiction writer. I just got my memoir picked up first uh I, at the exact same time that i was writing the memoir which was the you was a huge experiment i was writing another book where the protagonist was they because i wanted to explore that how many times have you heard or said yourself you know they said this they did that that's how they find you all this you know this fill in the blank and have full conversations on that that was the other book that I was writing, and it came out on Inauguration Day, which we ended up doing as kind of a sly grin. So I noticed you're playing with a Rubik's Cube. Yep. Uh, is that? Can a- you hear it? I'm sorry. I traded my my Slinky for a Rubik's Cube. I'm curious. I'm just curious as to why. Like, I, just, I mean, is this something you like like often do, or is does this just happen to be on your desk? It. It's on my desk for a purpose it, because my phone is not here. My, like I said, my mind is always spinning. I'm always thinking. And if I can just get into something that's will take me back to the reptilian mindset, then the stories start coming. It's easier to talk that way. But I used to have a slinky, and I, I would play with the slinky when I was teaching in person. Not a big problem. But when you're sitting in front of your microphone, and I, I was teaching an intro to memoir class at OSU, this last fall, and I got called out by my students several times for playing with the slinky because I would just I needed to do something to focus 
so I could almost like meditation. Same thing with my punching bag. There's a punching bag in the corner of my office. Can you solve a Rubik's Cube? No. No. And that, that's the point, is that I'll never be finished. I've gotten so close, and I turn it, and I'm nowhere near close. There is, like, a pattern, you know? Like, I've looked at it on YouTube before. Like, there's a, you know, there's a way to do it. It's like the, there's a few twists. Some people can do that shit in, like, a, like 10 seconds, right? I had a kid... A guy that I was serving with, he could do it under under 30 seconds. He would hand us the cube, tell us to screw it up as best we could, hand it to him. And I think the longest it ever took was 38 seconds. That was his only redeeming quality. The fact that you have a Rubik's Cube places us in the same generation. That was such, yes. a, such a big deal toy when we were kids, right? In the 80s? Or... Yes. I was born in 77. I'm 75, so I'm a couple, okay. just a couple of years. But um, I remember distinctly, like, coveting my neighbor's Rubik's Cube. <laughs> I remember taking the stickers off mine to solve it. Wait, what do you mean? Why, do, why would you take the stickers off to As solve it? As a kid, it? I would get so close. And then because I wanted to win, I would just swap out a few stickers. Oh, oh, oh. I thought there was, like, answers underneath no, the stickers. No, 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 no. That was just me being a kid wanting to solve the thing. Right. Right, right. Because our games were Hungry Hippo and Connect Four. Yep. And uh, I think my first handheld game was with the dolphin and the rings. Okay, yeah. That, that's like no, I have like a vague like picture of that in my mind. So, how did you wind up in Oklahoma? You were like, you know, I, I can track you from Duluth, and then you go off into the military, and then you serve on an army base in. Mississippi? Is it an Army or Navy? Oh, it was a Navy base. The Navy, Navy base down in, yeah, down on the Gulf Coast, and then yes. off to the Middle East, and then you come back, and you wind up in Oklahoma? I came back. I went back to Mississippi because I have a son down there, and just the relationship with his mother and I was caustic. So we, we split ways. I went back home, started back in school, finished the last two years of my undergrad, had 17 months left on my GI Bill, so I found a 16-month MFA program that I did low, low residency, so we only had to be there for 10 days out of the semester, so it was just two flights a year. And after I finished that, I applied for my PhD and got accepted and came right on over and then COVID hit. And my program, my funding all hinged on meeting in class and teaching in class. Otherwise I'd have to pay out of pocket and there's no way. So I just decided to take that time off and finish what I was writing, polish it up. Everything except for one book. I was, after I graduated, I was writing two books a year. And all but one have been picked up, and I have a soft yes on the one that I'm rewriting right now. So I was in Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is not a big town, but the university is massive. I believe it's 25,000 undergrads pre-COVID. So 
anytime I wanted to escape and entertain myself, I came to Tulsa. There's so much to do here. There's a huge literary scene, so much music. It's, it's a weird culture. Oklahoma is low-key Florida. Like, I'll hear Florida man did this, but the Oklahoma man never makes national news. And it's horrifying, the stuff that's on the daily news down here. So it's it's fiction fodder, which is my next book that's coming on April 23rd. When I got to rural Oklahoma, just stumbling around town and seeing people that were made for fiction and wondering what their story was and coming up with one, piecing it together and little taking little stories that there were no room for in the memoir again, and then putting them in other stories. Oklahoma so, man. I, I, I have not uh, heard this phrase before. So you think Oklahoma man can compete with Florida man? Oh, absolutely. I had a thread going on Twitter for a while. We had, there was, uh, Oklahoma man pulled over. He had plutonium, rattlesnakes, whiskey, and a pistol. The pistol was the one thing that didn't make the headline that was buried in the article. And then... Wait, he had plutonium? Plutonium. It's like, the, it's like Marty McFly in Back to yeah. the Future. <laughs> yeah. And then the last one that hit national news, once you dig into it, it's a saddening story. But two men lured someone into the woods to do their gender reassignment surgery and then ate what they cut off them. Jesus Christ. Yes. But here's where Oklahoma dials it up. You can now Airbnb at the trailer where they gave the castration. Really? Yeah. You can Airbnb. It's out in the middle of nowhere. But you can Airbnb that that location. Oh, my God. And we have everything. We have Oklahoma. I call it the belt buckle of the Midwest. We have swamps, alligators, buffalo, salt flats, sand dunes. It's it's amazing the things that are here. Wait, uh, Oklahoma has alligators? Yes. You go down towards the southeast uh, portion of Oklahoma around the... Uh, Pretty much anywhere along the Red River where there's oxbow turns. And then there's a few other. It's called the Red Slough. And that's where all of the, the big gators are. Damn, I had no idea. I always picture like Oklahoma in my mind. I've driven through years and years ago. I always picture it as just like pasture land. Like sort of that Texasy, like uh, hill country and pasture land. That is such a small part of Oklahoma. And it, but it's just, it's such a, the, the culture here is so weird, so tone deaf against everyone else. Um, you know, Tulsa is now on the reservation and I work for one of the schools and it's like a district inside of a district, but that they're the Redskins on the reservation, completely tone deaf. There, there's just it, it, Oklahoma is so weird, and just they don't get it, and they're not going to get it. So the best you can do is sit back and just shake your head. It's strange to be blue in a red state, but this is also one of the greenest states in, in the country. So right now, it's the place for me. 
What do you mean greenest? Oh, marijuana is everywhere. Oh, right. Yeah, and I can't, being that my doctors are with the federal agency, they can't prescribe it, so I have to come out of pocket for myself, but it's done so many things. I mean, it's it's calmed me. I have I was medically retired when I was 34, and I, I didn't lose a limb or anything like that, but I was just so beat up from 12 years of running around with 85 pound plus gear on day in day out my foot wasn't working right i have a knee that doesn't bend all the way i have an elbow that don't work properly and it's you're just a beat up old man so all of a sudden you're figuring like oh yeah now i figure out that those old hippies they weren't you know they weren't making it up this stuff actually does work it does sedate you it does help you you know, it, 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 there's more things in it than just a, a fun buzz. Yeah, I think the medical um, application of cannabis and cannabinoids uh, obviously has merit, you know, especially for people like you, um, you know, like physical maladies, uh, trouble sleeping, post-traumatic. I'm assuming there's post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, um, I've also read interesting studies about psychedelics um, yes, as being, have I. being employed in clinical situations for soldiers, you know, soldiers who are dealing with post-traumatic stress. And I don't want to say like uh, MDMA too, either yes. MDMA or like ayahuasca. Was given to Vietnam vets for okay. a while and they were, the Vietnam vets were saying they were cured of their PTSD after being on ecstasy. But I have read a lot. That's who I went to was the VA's research to see what cannabinoids and, and the terpenes that I should be looking for. At one point years ago, someone said, hey, you should try this. And I was paranoid and anxiety ridden for the next three hours. So I was gun shy for a long time until I started doing my research and I found out there are certain types I should touch, some I should never touch. What you mean, and, like like indica and sativa, and getting yes, a... certain sativas, certain there are certain terpenes inside that affect things differently, and you can you can there's umpteen million strains out there, and it's just finding one that's dialed in perfect for you is going to take a while. I have an uncle that smokes because it was recommended, and it makes him a bigger <sighs> asshole. What's your strain? Like, what's your what's your oh, sweet spot? It's uh, during the day it's green crack, which was, I'm told, given that nickname by Snoop Dogg, who that that's his go-to. Which is, I started losing weight because it actually suppresses the appetite, which was good because I was getting kind of heavy. But then I noticed like, hey, Snoop's skinny too, and then at night. I have another strain, and I'm actually growing. That's why I'm bluey, purpley. I had to move everything into this room. You can actually see the the plant shadow on the wall behind me. Oh yeah, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to move everything because it's negative five degrees outside right now. These houses are not insulated for that, so everything is just shoved into one room. So I'm living in my office right now, which is appropriate. So I'm growing my nighttime strain, which is initially why I took it, just because I could not sleep. I didn't sleep for almost four years. I was going to a neurologist, and finally he said, you just need to sleep. And at one point, one of my doctors left me in his office for like three hours. And 
after about 45 minutes, I laid down the examination table and woke up later when he, and he just wanted me to take a nap. There's just so much that we got put through that never, you know, even purposely that screwed up our, our, your psych, your sleep cycles, your physiology. It's doing a lifetime in the military is not something you want to do. It's, it's some, it's great to get the experience. Like we said, get the, get a job skill. Just don't go in there and try to be Rambo or try, you know, try to get the cool guy job. But it's the the effects are just so multi layered. We had been subjected to a sleep study while I was on a mission, which I had no clue about until I was in my psych one oh one class in the University of Wisconsin. And what we had done for ninety days was work a day, take a day off, work a night, take a day off, work a day. And so on and so forth for 90 days. And we didn't know why. We had to take a TBI test, traumatic brain injury test, memory test before and then after to see what what happened to our memory. And what I found out after I was in the university and we reading about this study, which was deemed unethical, that uh, it was to provoke or... It was so that you could not embed memories. It's causable deniability. They don't want you remembering what happened or what yes. you did? That that was the crux of the experiment. And they never told us what happened to our memories when we took the tests afterwards. But I know my memory was not good for a long time after that, trying to get back into sleep cycle. Well, I don't – yeah, I, I... – I'm a big believer in good sleep, like increasingly, I think, as I... Oh, learned. absolutely. I have my routine down pat now that I'm in control of it. Yeah, I just, I think people underestimate, like they, like in American culture in particular, there's all this like competitive stressing and people bragging about how little sleep they need and it's yes. just, it's moronic and um, it doesn't square at all with like basic science. Like we need, you know, seven to nine hours of sleep as adults generally speaking like it varies from person to person but i don't know anybody who is a military veteran who is not an early riser i'm trying to think like once you've spent a long time in the military it's pretty hard to like break those patterns like maybe seven is the latest i can go that's it how many hours of sleep are you getting with the uh not green crack what's your night strain again (laughs) Oh, I'm, I'm in the middle of switching, but it was nine pound hammer, <laughs> which exact it's uh, with that smoke at 10, wake up at seven, six thirty sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's what you, that's what human beings, that's what we need. And it's got to slow down because once you stop doing everything for the day, that's when everything bubbles up and that's no big secret. But if I can shut off all the all those all that stuff that well, I got to do tomorrow or next week, or if I want to make sense of something that happened last week or twenty, thirty years ago, so I have no shame in finding something that's not going to hurt me in the long run, and that will, you know, sedate me enough to have a a human experience. Yeah. No, I hear you, and I think. Uh, 
I feel the same way about cannabis, um, you know, is that I try to go without, like, I'm not dealing with the same issues that you are, that other people are, but I am a human being and like, I'm living in a city and I'm trying to raise kids and, you know, one of my kids has disability issues and I'm, you know, there's the stuff of life yeah. and everybody's well, got I did it. Not smoke until last spring, shortly after my daughter committed suicide. That was the straw. That oh was my God. I did. How many kids do you have? Or two. I, I, well, one now, but I had two. I had a, I had a son and a daughter, uh, two different marriages from there. They were five years apart. How old was your, how old was your daughter? 16. Oh, I'm so sorry. And it was, it was, it, I'm still in shock and I'm sure I'll be in shock for forever. And I'm trying to make sense of that one. Just like I tried to make sense of my mom. She died on groundhog day. One of the most jovial holidays we have. And then 1203 on St. Patrick's day, I get a phone call from my daughter's stepfather saying that uh, he had bad news and then the bad news came Ugh. my god man how much can a person take that's too much yeah I, I, I would like some a life of ease such as i i think i'm trying to carve out a pretty good niche of just being a reclusive storyteller I hear, I feel that. I have that same impulse. Like, I'm just like, maybe I'll just stay in this room <laughs> <laughs> and just, uh, you know, write something down and hopefully be able to, and read books and not cause trouble. You know, that's what, what I've been trying to do since the world realized that COVID was serious as it is. But my, my daughter's funeral was at the very very beginning of the lockdown we could only have 10 people in the funeral home at a time Damn. Where, did she, where did she live was she nearby she you lived, no no she lived in her stepfather is stationed in fort walton beach florida okay so i had to drive down there and then the we had to get her a slot at the national cemetery which she took my place which i'll be buried with her someday and then because of the restrictions that kept on popping up there was even a limit to so many people in the cemetery so we couldn't bury her until we had postponed the burial three times but i did not go to the actual physical burial i couldn't do it hmm. i am so sorry man that's that's really tough and uh I didn't realize that was happening, that, that, that it happened when I was talking about, um, you know, I was, I was speaking about cannabis and just like the difficulties of life. And you were talking about getting yourself into a situation where you can take something that's not going to harm you long term and it will allow you to kind of focus on one thing and to kind of quiet things down. Um, I struggle sometimes because like I'd rather not take anything and usually I don't, but I, I'm, I don't know, I'm one of these like, self-critical and uh i can get a little bit tedious about it like i'll just be like is this the right thing to be doing taking this two milligram cannabis tablet on a saturday mm -hmm. and you know i i feel like listen if you're if you're living some sort of monastic existence removed from the rigors of like life you know 
like family life or work life, then maybe it's easier. But when you're in the thick of it and you're dealing with the stresses that you've got or that anybody's got in one form or another, sometimes you need to turn the noise down. Yes. I don't know how, that's a great way of putting it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. You know, like life is a lot. Quote you next time someone talks about cannabis for that. Yeah, it's just, it's a lot. Um, And, you know, it's it's hard to bear, you know, 24-7, 365 days a year. It's like some days you're just like, holy shit, (laughs) you know, like I need a timeout. Absolutely. um, So you are waiting on a PhD to like a PhD program to resume, correct? Possibly. I've, I've stepped out of it and I actually started teaching workshops for them now. So I'm like, I'm not an associate professor. I'm actually in the same context as the guy that fills the Coke machine, which is a really weird way. The universities are handling things with teachers nowadays. So, I'm just kind of waiting to see what these books are going to do. Uh, one came out in January. One, this one, as you were, will be out on February 16th next week, and then April 23rd is my next, and I'm hoping to have one in the fall. So I'm really hoping one of these books grabs the right person's attention, and they take off, and I can actually continue to do this instead of just have a burst of creative energy and then have to go back into the academic world. Hmm. Now, you mentioned you got your MFA at, it was, I think you called it II, is that what it is? I, I, the Institute of American Indian Arts, it has a longer name than that, but that's what we usually go by, we just say IA. IA, okay. And and you worked with Stephen Graham Jones, who was recently a guest on this program. I talked oh, to him. Oh, Stephen was on the show. I didn't know that. Yeah, I talked to him, I want to say, for, oh, I had him on for episode 666, because he writes, like, good oh. horror, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Stephen was the, the reason as you were is written in second person i kind of jokingly said i should do it and he threw down the gauntlet and then i committed to it so he mentored you he mentored me yes he he was my second mentor and my my thesis mentor so i'm like my second and my fourth mentor and we we worked it was it was amazing it was steven is an amazing writer so gifted and he gave me a lot of he didn't get in my way which was really cool because some I've had teachers do that before uh, I do a lot of time traveling in the book where I hop around sometimes in the same paragraph and he told me not to stop doing that and just keep on doing it but he didn't know how to do it himself so he wasn't going to stop me from doing it he was actually going to sit back and try to learn for me and he was amazing mentor his his prolific is amazingly prolific and i think working with him is what helped me solidify my work ethic in this i was i was just going to say like that's the the reason he came to mind specifically is is as you were talking about all these books you have coming out in a single year like when i talked to him and learned about his career it was the same thing you're just astonished at his level of productivity um you know and there's something very Uh, practical and down-to-earth and unprecious about his approach to all this, whereas... I originally went to IA, hopefully, to work with who was the figurehead at that time, and 
he fell from grace during the Me Too movement, as he should have. And he had, he hasn't recovered from it. I hope he doesn't. And I didn't never got to work with him, which was disappointing. But I ended up working with Stephen, which was like beyond fathom for me, because he was. I was introduced to him as an undergrad. I started reading his books, and I saw a lot of echoes. I was like, I want to, I want to meet this guy, and I ended up meeting him at AWP in 2015. He signed the his second person story, which is called uh, Not for Nothing, out from Design Books as well. It's an amazing book. I will never lend that to anyone. But he talked me into it from there, and we worked together, and when we're addressing and interrogating identity while you're writing, he says you should never sit down with a headdress on when you're at your keyboard. Don't write in a way that will have people looking at the picture on the back of the book to see if you really are Indian. And that's that's something that he and I connected on where he's not a Blackfoot writer. He is a writer, and that's where I want to be. That's how I want to exist. I want to be a writer. I have all kinds of ethnicities, but I was raised on Native land by Native people. I have no connection to any other place. So I I think people are going to hear a lot more from Stephen. His books are amazing. His older stuff, his experimental stuff, the Bird is Gone is an amazing book, which you should check out. That came out from FC2. Uh, there's so much. There's so many indie writers out there finally breaking into the the big box stores, that realm, that big five realm. I remember walking into the the local Barnes and Noble here and seeing the very first setup that uh, that greets you as Stephen Graham Jones like. Last book, uh, the only good Indians. Well, that was, one of, the, that was, that was one of the bigger books of last year. That that did really yes, well. That did really well. Well, uh, David, it has been a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I really enjoyed your book. I got to say, you know, it it took a bite out of me. I think that was probably the point. It's a it's a powerful story that you had to tell. I'm glad you're telling it. I hope you know, in doing so, you're kind of reclaiming the narrative, as you said, at the top of the conversation in a way that, um, brings you some healing. Um, I hope that's the case. And, um, you know, I'm impressed by all that you have going on and I'm impressed by the very fact of your survival. (laughs) Well, thank you. All right. There it is. That's David Tremblay. His new memoir is called As You Were. Available now from DeZank Books. It is the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find David online at davidtremblay.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle at at, uh, Twitter is at davidtremblay. The memoir, again, is called As You Were. Available now from DeZank Books, the official February pick of the TNB Book Club. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you like the show, support the show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There's almost 700 episodes. All are available for free. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. If you want to tip your server, 
If you have the means, go ahead and do that. I would certainly appreciate it. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Tell me a story. Let me know what you think of the show. If you want to get some merchandise, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, uh, a tank top, you can even get a onesie for your uh, newborn child. You can do that by going to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. The Other People podcast has its own app. The Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. Go get the app wherever you get your apps. It's a good app. Next week on the program, my guest will be Melissa Broder. Is that right? I believe it is. Yes, Melissa Broder, author of, uh, author of the novel Milkfed and uh, an old pal of mine. She's been on the show before. Great to catch up with her. Stay tuned for that. She's a funny one. trying to think of what else I need to tell you there's going to be there there are things happening there will be developments I'm not quite ready to share yet but that's on the horizon I'm doing things behind the scenes to make your experience of this program better because I care about you (laughs) 